You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech Fan Podcast number 313. I'm Tim Robertson, joined by David Cohen. Hello, David. Hello. So you uh, took some time out of your flight duties to come in and podcast. That's right, yeah. You know, it's busy keeping the skies safe. Somebody's got to do it, but I figured this was also important. David is on the job. (laughs) So... By that, you know, for the last couple of weeks, you've uh, teased talking about the new drone you have, which is a, what is that, the DJ Spark? Is that what DJI it is? Spark. DJI right. Spark, yeah. yeah. And you sent me some footage that you shot, watched it on my phone. Now, is that, is that um, the first footage that you've done with it? It is. That was the first time I've flown it. Okay. When, when did you shoot that? Uh, a couple of days ago. Okay. All right. So it was interesting, actually, because I actually got the drone about two, three weeks ago, but because of the stuff that's been going on at home, it's really not been appropriate for me to go out and play with my toys. Um, but it, one of the things that – the reasons I bought the Spark is it is tiny. Um, it's basically – the body of it is about the size of a – kind of an old-style Nokia smartphone, a um, little bit thicker, and then it has the propellers coming off each corner. So it really is quite small, so it folds up down nice, and I was able to travel with it, so I, I took it down to London with me this week while I was working. Um, was slightly stymied by the fact that London takes a fairly dim view of drones, <laughs> any description, that you are not allowed to, basically within central London, with any of the royal parks or anything, you are not allowed to find fly drones at all. I think that's then, probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, but so so I was, I kind of hadn't realized this until I started looking into it. Um, but eventually I found a park that was kind of, I was staying in North London, and so it was about 10, 15 minute walk from my hotel. Um, where I figured I would be okay. Funnily enough, the the DJI app is actually very good about observing these these um, restrictions. Uh, and because I was still in kind of the main part of London, the whole of London has this kind of big red prohibition area over on the DJI map that says you really need to be careful about tra- flying your drone here. And when you first power it up, the the app kind of pops all these warnings up to you that you have to swipe away to actually make sure that you you know what you're doing and that you're. Uh, it's kind of like you know when you start up a car with a sat nav and you have to punch through the warnings saying you're not going to look at this way driving and all that sort of thing. So I did all of that and yeah, I was I finally able to get the thing up and running. Um, it the it's like that DJI is a, is a Chinese company and generally they've done a pretty good job with this this product and, and they're very well known in, in kind of drone circles for being you know the, the easiest ones to get set up and running but still pairing the drone up to my phone uh, the phone that effectively acts as a controller for it um, was a real pain in the <laughs> pain in the neck you the thing talks to the drone over Wi-Fi but then it also wants to talk to the internet so you kind of have to turn the drone on a certain sequence, connect to it manually with your phone using Wi-Fi, then go into the DJ app to get it to see the drone, um, and then it will start doing things, and then it will check for updates, and then it will say, right, you need to go on the internet now, and you have to change back, and you, you have to kind of do this kind of dance. But It was a bit like shuffling floppies, only it was shuffling Wi-Fi networks. Um, but I, I did all of that, and eventually got the thing up and running, and I was comfortable that, that I was going to be able to fly it. Um, you'll see from the footage, I, you know, that, that I, I didn't really, I kept it in beginner mode. 
Yes. I figured the first time I was going to fly it, I didn't want to be going shooting it off and losing it or everything. So or it, crashing into it, a tree. Yeah. Or... Beginner mode restricts how far it will go, how high it will go, how fast it will move. Um, it gives you quite a lot of tolerance in, in terms of how it responds to the control sticks on the, either the phone or the remote. And I should explain that you can fly this drone three ways. You can use your phone and an app on your phone, and then you get kind of virtual sticks. The, the app shows you the view from the camera uh, on the drone, so you can actually see where you're flying. And then there's kind of stuff around it that kind of gives you situational awareness and allows you to control either things on the drone or things on the camera of the drone. Um, then there's also the pack I bought is, is kind of the upgraded pack. You can get a, a remote for it as well, um, which kind of looks a little bit like a, a general radio control remote, but it allows the iPhone to kind of stick into two holders at the bottom. Uh, and then the phone talks to the remote and then the remote talks to the drone. And the advantage of that is you get much better range because you're not relying on just Wi-Fi between your phone and the drone, which although is going to be about 100 meters. So with, the, with that, you kind of get up to about half a mile. Um, and then the third mode is this gesture mode where you basically you don't use anything at all. You kind of put it in a special mode and it takes off, it hovers in front of you, identifies your face, and then you can use your uh, hand using gestures to kind of um, move it around and That's make weird. take pictures and that sort of thing. Now that mode I've not really played with yet because what I found out was after I started flying this in the park is um, I attracted quite a lot of interest. And so I didn't really, really want to be doing experimentation with kind of face recognition and and uh, uh, gestures and that sort of thing when I had people want every basically everybody who wanted pass came up and had a look. So I decided to forget about that and I just did the um, beginner mode with the remote and uh, shot shot a few a few moments of footage uh, and kind of played around it and got got a feel for it and um, it is exceptionally cool. It I, really is. Looking cool. looking at the footage. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing stood out to me. It's when you're going up and down, and and it's moving slowly. the The picture quality is superb. Yeah. But when you're hovering and you just turn it pan left or right, it's almost unwatchable. Mm -hmm. it, it, it you almost get that queasiness, like ugh, because everything just yeah. moves too fast. Like and it, and the reason for that is that the gimbal on the camera on this one. Is only uh, balanced vertically. Uh, so the more expensive drones are balanced in four directions, and you effectively it compensates for the motion um, whenever you move it to keep a, a good picture. But on this one, because it's slightly cheaper, it only has up and down um, gimbal control on the camera. So that's why you get that effect. So you'd um, really which, have which to plan out your shots if you're going to use this camera. Exactly. You'd have to plan it out and you, what you'd have to do. It's actually worse because I was so close to the trees and the ground. If you're up, up higher, the effect is nowhere near as noticeable. Um, but but when you've got something quite close in front of you, you can really see it, as yeah. you say. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a fair amount of processing going on as well. I mean, it, the camera in there is, is probably, you know, as good as an iPhone camera in terms of size and, and kind of depth and that sort of thing. So obviously... As, as we know from, from using our iPhones, um, the processes there are doing a lot of the heavy lifting to produce usable images from those devices. Um, and so, you know, the optics help you out, but also there's all that computing processing as well. And remember, these images are being streamed from, they're being saved to an SD card in the drone, but they're also being streamed down to the phone, and then, um, you know, you kind of save them up from there. So there, there's probably some processing you do to reduce that effect. And certainly, you, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. If you were using it for 
kind of filming or anything, you probably want to plan your shots a bit more carefully and do some judicious editing to avoid that yeah. that effect. Yeah, it's still cool. I mean, uh, it's it, still very I, impressive. I, I, the thing is, the thing is about this is is when I first started flying it, I was thinking this reminds me of something, and I can't couldn't put my finger on it initially, and then I realised what it was. It's the um, the HK the Hunter Killer drones in the Terminator movies. Oh, I it, could see that. Kind, yeah, it kind of looks like that. And and then I started thinking about it. I thought, well, really, this is kind of a semi-autonomous robot because a lot of the stuff it's doing is doing itself. It's it's got sensors on the bottom, on the sides. It's analysing the image through the front, and it's reacting to it. And it's got GPS and um, Wi-Fi and everything. It's reacting to its environment. It's doing a lot of that heavy lifting itself, and it which is makes it kind of super simple to fly. It virtually well, it does. It flies itself. I, di- I didn't have the I didn't have the camera on when I did this, but I actually took it up above the tree line where I was. Um, I was in the kind of this little clearing, like, which I thought was quite good because it meant meant that you know all the people around me couldn't see what I was doing. I was a bit worried that people might get a bit freaked out as soon as they saw this thing. Um, but because I was in that clearing, you know, I was I was sheltered by these trees that you see in the video. So I actually took it up above that. Um, just to see what it was like high up, and obviously it's a lot more windy up there. And I actually got a warning on the um, on the app saying, you know, gusty conditions, high winds. But the thing is that you could see the drone compensating for that. You could see it tilting, as as a bird would if it was trying to, you know, can't trying to kind of fly through a heavy wind. And this is what the drone was doing as well. Nothing to do with me. It was just doing reacting to it automatically, and it stayed in pretty much the same place, even though it's being blown about by the wind up there. Hmm. So it's doing an awful lot of work to fly. And if you've ever tried to fly one of these cheap toy ones, you'll find that that you know without a lot of practice, they're virtually unflyable because they don't do very much for you. And the the ability to watch what you're doing. Um, figure out where your fingers are, uh, and then also um, compensate for the fact that things not, you know, the, the change in perspective that that you might not be directly behind it or something. That's quite a hard skill to pick up. And the advantage of these more expensive drones is you don't need to do that because um, you know it does a lot of that work for you. You'll see on the video when it comes into land, it it, it is there's still a bit of cognitive dissonance because you kind of you're thinking right i want to look at where the drone is and see where it is and they also want to look at the screen to see what I can, what's going through the camera and then i also need to be aware of, of where what i'm doing and everything and you find it's quite a heavy workload i i imagine you get better as you as you kind of practice with it a bit more but yeah it was it was almost quite stressful thinking oh you know i want to make sure it doesn't hit a tree uh, and i want to you know am i landing it now am i taking it up now what am i doing it and, and then how am i controlling it as well it was quite a lot of work but it, it wasn't a lot of fun hmm. it, it looks pretty cool yeah i i mean i'm, I'm looking forward to really kind of doing something more useful with it than just basically taking it off in a cop so I, I want to you know try and try and see what the camera can do and what sort of kind of cool shots i can get with it and also it's um as at the moment i'm only using it in this beginner mode um there are once you turn that off then it has a whole load of pre-programmed shots you can use it has a tripod mode where you can um kind of use it as a as a like a standard cam like almost like as a floating camera platform for things and pieces bits and pieces i want to try that uh and then there's a sport mode where basically it takes all the restrictions off and and in sport mode it will do 30 miles an hour uh and that's that's when it's going to get kind of quite exciting in terms of what you can shoot with it so so what is there like a certain thing that you're like i i want a drone because is there a 
yeah, uh, I mean, I other than it just looks cool. I have a particular project in mind. Um, you know, it's not like I'm thinking I'm going to use it particularly for aerial shots for it for kind of a, my next sci-fi blockbuster or anything like that. No, um, I think this these this sort of technology is going to become increasingly important and increasingly cheap uh, over the next few years. And I really wanted to get in, you know, almost at the ground floor. Yeah, they're starting to become quite mature now. This is considering the sophistication of of it. The Spark is actually very reasonably priced, it's about five hundred dollars, which uh, for what it does is not bad money at all. Um, and it, you know, it really is a good entry level into it. The next model up, the Mavic Pro, is much much better, but it's double the price. Um, but the Mavic Pro is is effect- is virtually like an entry level Pro drone. You could you could shoot movies with it and something like this. With this, I'm I'm not so sure how much you could do, but. Um, you know, yeah. Part of it was to have a, a fun, a fun toy to play with. But you know, I do think that this kind of technology has become more important, and I want to, I want to be involved with it. You know, and it was interesting. Everybody who came over to look at it, you know, quite a lot. Uh, but you know, basically, no kid could walk past without coming in and seeing it. But there was a couple of uh, older couples as well who, who who came over as well, and everyone was fascinated because they've heard about these things, they've seen these things on TV or in movies, and but they um, a lot of people haven't seen them in real life, and they, they you know they really were very very interested. I was surprised. I thought some people might be a bit hostile, bearing in mind it was like you know um, seven o'clock on a on a on a midweek evening in the park. Some people might go, "Oh, why are you bothering us with that in the park?" Is it loud? Everybody. It's it's not that loud because it's not that big, but um, you know it's there. You can hear it. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like somebody's running a um, kind of a weed whacker or something in the area. Yeah, angry bees. That, yeah, angry bees type thing. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, and actually, I, I think that's one of the things that that you know now they're kind of getting the electronics down. They need to think about doing something about it, making them quieter. I'm sure if you optimize the um, the propeller the propeller materials and, and the angles and that sort of thing, you could probably make them quieter than they are now. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, and plus, yeah. you know, there's a lot of sound-canceling technologies that come into play that they could probably employ as well. Yeah. I, I think I've, One of the things <laughs> I think that, that's kind of a bit unfortunate about about these, because of some of, some of the negative aspects people think about, of, because people won't think about using them as weapons and privacy concerns and that sort of thing, is that a lot of the really cool things I'd like to do with it, you're not allowed to do. <laughs> you know, um, I'd, I'd love to be able to fly over buildings and see what the roofs of buildings were like and, you know, see what it's like over a city um, at 250 feet, the view from up there. But you're just not allowed to do that, and certainly not here in the UK. Um, you, you're not allowed to fly it out of line of sight. Um, you're not allowed to fly it um, over inhabited areas, really. You're not really meant to fly anywhere near people at all. And I can understand why some of those restrictions are placed, because the problem is a lot of people are idiots, you know. Well, um, yeah. And, and also things can go wrong. But it, it, in some respects, it's a little bit sad that the, um, you know, those restrictions have come in so quickly, because there are really cool things you could do with it. You could, you could think of doing with it that you just aren't allowed to do. And you know that if you went somewhere in public side, you know, flying it up to bridges or something like that, before you know it, you'd have the cops on you asking you questions. And, you know, that's unfortunate. So it's been a, a, a very weird week um, here in the United States. You know, we've had protesters and Nazis marching, and it's it's been a strange, surreal time in the United States. Uh, and then, of course, yesterday, Barcelona gets hit with a terrorist attack. Um, 
it's hard to ignore that, you know, when you're doing a, a weekly show like we are. Yeah. And I had someone email me. Well, they texted me on Facebook asking if I'm going to talk about this stuff on TechFan. And I said no. And I wanted to clarify that, not just for the person who asked the question, but anybody who may be listening. Um, here's the thing. People don't necessarily listen to the show the week or the day that it comes out. You know, some people, they, they'll skip four or five episodes and then that's what they'll listen to, you know, back to back. So it's not always timely. You know, it's not always news of the day. And then when David and I pick a news of the day type of thing to discuss, you know, I think it has bigger implications long term for the tech industry. And the stuff that's been going on politically, you could take some tech angles, but it's it's done to death lately. And I, I like the reprieve from that, that tech fan yeah, offers. I, I completely agree with you. I, I My wife sent me a text about, um, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. So, you know, when, basically when, when things have been said, start to be rolled back. Uh, and and I, I just replied back. I said, I don't want to know. I can't bear hearing about it. I am just, you know, I can't deal with the crazy anymore. Yeah, uh, on all on all sides. Yes, I, and, and I'm not just aiming it at the president. I'm also saying that on all sides, it, we've got we've got a similar situation here with the in the UK with the um, the Brexit negotiations. You know, one side leaks something, and then somebody else who has a different opinion leaks something else. Um, and and I'm you know while you know I I take these things responsibly. I want to be informed. I want to know what's going on. But the minute by minute, blow by blow, it gets um, overwhelming. Yeah, and, and and the problem is in in today's crazy world, you don't know which are the things that are the important tipping points, and which are the things that will just be you know next week's, you know on on the cutting room floor next week as as no longer interesting. It's impossible to tell because everything could could go either way, and so it, it's exhausting, and I, I find it difficult to cope with. And I don't um, think anybody listens to this show to get necessarily that type of news or commentary there's much better places to get that that quite frankly they're better informed than you and i because we have very diverse interests and of course this is a tech show now i could talk about and we could talk about some of the things that private tech companies are doing uh in retaliation to some of these um hate groups and stuff like that now that i think is worth talking about for instance facebook shutting down some pages that are um used by hate groups uh, some other groups not selling products to known hate groups or blocking them those kind of things i think they're worth talking about but it really comes down to it's private companies they have they're not a country they they don't have to respect your free speech if they don't want to um, they could pretty much do what they want with their products. And if they want to not sell to you because of ideological reasons, they're welcome to do that. There's courts to, to decide whether that's legal or not. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of comparison, obviously, with what's going on at the moment. There's a lot of comparisons made with the civil rights movements of the 60s where, you know, there was segregation and there was the Jim Crow laws and, and all of that. And um, that was was almost a state-sponsored endorsement of, of um, prejudice. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, 
companies, you know, there was, there was the, the famous, uh, you know, diner sit-ins and things like that um, that started early in the civil, civil rights movement when, when lots of uh, African-Americans would go to all, uh, a diner that was that was sort of marked white only and would deliberately order and sit there. Um, now, those those diners were doing that because the law let them do that. Yeah. Yeah, they were following. They were following the. You know, don't get me wrong. And they, it was was it prejudicial? Of course it was. But the, the 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 federal and state laws permitted it, so they weren't breaking laws. So they were they were enjoying their own constitutional and legal right to their own free speech by being prejudicial um, to to non-whites. Now, we've moved on from there, thank goodness. Um, but the point about free speech is it's a two-way street. And um, I, I, I would always endorse the right of hate groups to say what they want to say, um, because it is you can't have free speech and censorship in the same thing. But that doesn't mean that everybody is compelled to um, participate and listen to it. And the media companies are free to not report it if they don't want to. And certainly private companies in the tech sector are, are free to not take those people as customers, which is what they've started to do. Yep. Um, and, and that is also their free speech. And to, to force people to accept everybody's views is you know, there's a very fine line there between allowing free speech on all sides and, and, and then allowing prejudice to set in and allowing prejudice to be implicitly endorsed. It's very, it's a very complex situation. Free speech um, gives you the right to say what you want, but it doesn't give you the right to walk into a crowded movie theater and yell fire. Yeah, and yeah. also as well, it, it gives you the right to say what you want, but it doesn't give you the right to have everyone else hear you. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the subtle difference. Yeah, you can say and think whatever you like. Yeah, and no government. And, and that's the other thing is free speech is a government right. It's a civil right. Um, it's not. Um, it's not something that that every private individual has to um, endorse and listen to your views. They've got a perfect right not to listen to them, Absolutely. and they've got a perfect right not to be seen to endorsing them by having you as a customer. Um, and that's that's kind of where it comes down to. And of course, it gets complicated because. Obviously, if if an entire sector, you know, decides, uh, I don't know, suppose people with ginger, let's let's take people with ginger hair. Suppose the entire set tech, tech sector decided to not deal with people who had ginger hair for whatever reason. Um, when when everyone kind of starts doing it, the, the, there would be a tipping point where it becomes moves away from being uh, a private decision and, and a private free speech right of the company concerned into something that was a more organized prejudice and then becomes a problem and then the government might want might want to look at it and step in but um, that's why we have laws and that's why we have judges and that's why these things are thrashed out in court rather than being um, dealt with in the court public opinion we welcome gingers on tech fan <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely so <coughs> I think you kind of reflected my feelings about it and so, why aren't yeah. we talking about it here? Ugh! It, come on, really? Yeah, and 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 the other thing, of course, is that I think our best conversations in, is when two of us have differing viewpoints, or certainly, and we don't have different, different viewpoints the on these viewpoint. things. And, and we know each other well enough to know that we are pretty much of a mind in terms of our attitude to what's been going on. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and honestly, if you've been listening to this show for more than a few episodes, you know where David and I stand on these issues as well. 
I, yeah. I don't think people are tuning in to say, oh, what's Tim and, and David thinking about this political thing? You know where we stand. <laughs> we, we, we both have very similar uh, thoughts on politics. So there it is. Uh, let's, uh, we, we kind of talked about this last week. We're always encouraging feedback and obviously we're still doing that. And yep. one of the feedbacks that we got, uh, multiple ones actually, uh, was very long. So we didn't talk about it much last week. And that's of course from listener Brendan. <clears throat> yeah. So you've kind of consolidated them. I, yeah, I think I thought what is it because there was there was two or three emails. He was this was all from the show from a couple of weeks ago, and he was responding kind of point by point to pretty much everything we talked about. So I thought not to just um, not mention it or go through it, but I thought it'd be worth just running through these and kind of putting his point across, and then we can talk about them a bit. Um, so Tim, he already oh, well, he he's aimed this at, at each of us, so. And this was a show that that um, we got messed up, and I was talking by myself, and then you talked by 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 yourself. Right. Yep. Okay. So Tim said, "Do you trust?" uh, He said, "Tim, Tim asked, do you trust cloud service?" Uh, And uh, Brendan thinks that basically because every day we're hearing about more online breaches, that that, you know that's a self-evident, self-answering question, and you shouldn't trust anything online. Even though that that's nowadays is is impractical. impractical yes. The tone of I think the tone of Brendan's comment here is that he he regrets that it's becoming impractical. Um, I, I the the difficulty I have with this is that look we all understand you know we we've talked many times about privacy and invasion of privacy and companies not the tech companies not doing enough to protect our privacy, but there is a trade off there um, because the you know they're not all evil money-grabbing companies that, that want to sell our souls and sell our information to the highest bidder. Most of them start from a place where they can do something useful with that information and you do get something back for that. You know, Facebook, I, as, as famously, I'm, I'm well known as not being a, a user or a fan of Facebook because I'm worried about what they do with their um, do with the information they get from their users. But I do recognize that it provides useful service to a lot of people. A lot of people are happy to trade that those privacy concerns for the information it and and the services it provides. So you know, I think you do have to. I don't think you can take an absolutist. I should. I must never ever give anything I want to give online, because it's it's not just online you're worried about. You should, you have to worry about you, your information is out there in loads of other places, and you can't live in modern society without um, sharing information about you here, there, and everywhere. And that's just the price of being in the civil society, unfortunately. Yeah, that's and the way society like that, is. You've got to go and kind of do the, uh, <clears throat> and we've you know, accepted the shed, it. The shed in the woods thing. Right. And, and, but as a society, we've accepted that at this point, haven't we? I think I, I think I think technology in particular is allowing these issues to move very quickly, um, and I think sometimes the the kind of the the public mood and the and the the legal frameworks that should sort of go over these things are are running behind the the reality. But I think that's always been the case. Go back to the industrial revolution and kind of employment law and and um, health and safety laws and everything were far behind what was actually happening in the factories because the pace of technological change was so big. Yes. And and now we can look back on that with the luxury of a, of a hundred years of 
legislation and experience on top of that those technologies but you know when it comes to online stuff we're still very much in the early days so it's not, it's not surprised that mistakes are, are going to be made and exploitation of the situation is also going to be made uh, i think you do need to be aware of it but um you know i i always think it's it is worth making the trade-off and, and making those decisions based on how valuable some of those services might be to you he also asks um Credit cards. Tim asked about the security of swiping a credit card, and he writes, uh, "You know, why use a credit card at all?" Uh, he, has a, he has a dim view of the credit card companies. Well, credit reference agencies. Fair, some... I would agree. But in today's society, it's increasingly difficult not to have one. Uh, there's some hotels that you can't even book a room without a credit card, as you and I yeah. well know. You can't even book yeah. a room. So what are you supposed to do? Um, I agree. You can get away from credit cards and just use debit cards. That's a fine alternative, and they usually work exactly the same way as a credit card, except it takes the money out of an account right then and there. So you don't have to worry about interest. You don't have to worry about anything like that. But unfortunately, we do live in a world in which, at least Western society, in which a lot of things are based on credit and credit scores. I sell cars for a living. Yeah. Um, if you don't have a credit, a good credit score, it's very hard to get financed for a new vehicle. Okay, so you just pay cash. You, well, you could do that if you know you've got twenty-seven thousand dollars just laying around. Most people don't. So if you want to buy a new car, you have to have good credit because you're probably going to have to finance it. Even if you want to lease, you got to have good credit. And if you don't have good credit, you got to get a co-signer, and that person has to have good credit. So, not having credit really isn't a, a viable option for most people. Now, there's always going to be the people who live on the fringe who will never buy a new car. They'll always buy a used car. And it'll be a 25-year-old car that, you know, runs great. I've never had to do a thing to it. That's fantastic, but that's not the norm. That's that's the exception to the rule. And people tend to like to have a nice new car. People tend to like a, a nice house, not a hut in the forest <laughs> that you're squatting in a tent in. Um, <coughs> you know, it's an unfortunate part of modern society that you have to have credit. And many countries, including the United States and Great Britain, run on credit, yeah. you know, on debt. And that's just the way it is. So yeah. while I agree, you could probably get away from credit cards themselves by going with a debit card. That only applies if what you're purchasing, you have the actual cash to buy. That's not always the case. In fact, in, if it's a big purchase, it's not going to be the case at all unless you're independently wealthy. And yeah. you probably didn't get independently wealthy without having credit somewhere in there. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and again, it goes back to what I was saying before. I, I think you do have to you do have to take credit cards and credit companies. Um, you, get, you have to go in with your eyes open. Sure. But I, I know plenty of people who don't use credit but still have a credit card for the reasons we say that the convenience factor, the fact that it's often much easier to get a transaction processed um, with a credit card than it is with any other form of payment, even a debit card. Um, sometimes it is, uh, as you say, you go to a place where credit is, uh, credit cards are the only place they, the, uh, the only thing they take. Now, if you have a card like that and you make sure that you can set it up quite easily that every time the bill comes at the end of the month it's automatically paid out your account to me that's pretty low risk and the advantages you get over a debit card is that if somebody steals it 
they haven't got access to your account. Right. Yeah. And also, because of the nature of credit cards, there's two bonuses there. First of all, um, the credit card companies are far more aware than the companies who operate or banks who operate debit cards about recognizing fraudulent patterns on your card and locking them down. And while it's inconvenient when that happens to you for legitimate reasons, you know, I've had it where I've, I've traveled to the States and used my card for a couple of days, all of a sudden it stops working. But you know what? I always welcome that, to be honest. Don't welcome the inconvenience, but at least I know if somebody steals my number on my card, um, I'm not going to be liable for a whole load of debt. Well, I just but lost my card uh, a few months ago now. Uh, I, I must have dropped it at the gas station, and my credit card company called me and said, hey, did you just use your card? And I said, yeah, I used it at the gas station. Well, someone found it, went out to the local Target, and spent like 400 bucks or something on it. Yeah. They took care of it right then. I mean, it was no problem. They didn't charge it to me. They canceled that credit card immediately and sent a new one, which I got within a week. I think it was like yeah. four days. Um, was it an inconvenience? Yeah, but if that would have been a debit card, I would have been in a world of hurt. Because well, I you don't think have got the money my back. That's the thing. I wouldn't have got. The, well, maybe. No. Well, yes, it depends where you, you are, and what legislation you're under. But um, credit card companies have been pretty well regulated. Yeah. Heavy, not well regulated. I, I don't want to necessarily endorse the regulation. Heavily regulated. They don't. The fact that they don't. You know, sting you for that for that money when when the cards been stolen. They don't do this out of the goodness of their heart. It's no. because of the regulation yes. um, and and the the legal obligations they operate under. Um, but the point is that is there to protect you, and it's much stronger protection than you get with a debit card. Here in the UK, if you buy something with a credit card and it's faulty, and the um, the um, the the vendor Merchant. won't refund you, they right. basically refuse to deal with you, or they go out of business. Yeah, you are still protected by the credit card company in law. You're not liable if you buy something that's faulty and, uh, you know, you go out and buy a MacBook and then Apple refuses to take it back. They say, oh, you broke it. Yeah, the credit card company will sort that out for you. And that is, again, it's not something they do out of the goodness of their heart. That's part of the UK consumer protection law. So you've got those protections and you don't have a strong protection with a debit card. So now, are there I downsides? Pers I personally prefer to have both. Yeah, but I, you know what? I don't. The same thing as free country. I don't have a problem with people who don't and and don't want to do that. I that's absolutely fine. If you don't have the credit card, there is no temptation to skip a month's payment and start borrowing the money. Mm -hmm. And it is an expensive way of borrowing money. Yeah, but I think it's kind of, for the most part, unrealistic not to have credit. Well, it's I think just I, the world I, works that way. The, now. I'd agree with you in the U.S. I think in the UK it's probably a little bit easier. We are not quite as far down the credit route as you guys have been. Yeah. I, I know from coming coming over there as a kid, I recognised very quickly that you know for adults it was very hard to do things without a credit card. Whereas in Britain it always was much easier, um, and we are still in that kind that kind of position. We are there are fewer places here where you can where you can't get by with a credit card. So um, you know Brendan is also British, so he'll have a. Uh, you know that similar experience. I, I agree. In the U.S., it's it's very very difficult. Now here's a part of his feedback that I totally agree with. Arm and he writes, yeah. "What a shame you you being David uh, got cut off partway through your arm tail and cannot finish the story of its transition from Acorn Risk Machine to part ownership by Apple with associated name change to Advanced Risk Machines." And Apple's first use of an ARM chip in, the new, in its Newton, followed by ARM selling out of RAM, or 
uh, of ARM, only to make a second use of it of ARM chips many years later with, of course, the iPhone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would like to hear kind of the continuation of that, which was uh, ARM was created initially uh, because of what Great Britain was doing with school children and low-cost programmable computers at the time. Yep. And so they became a company unto themselves, and it's gone through quite a few different ownerships now, but that company, ARM, uh, Acorn is how they started, is still there and still doing quite well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, well, extremely well. I think uh, Intel's principal competitor now, and um, I think we're all waiting for the day that ARM kind of takes over the computing industry because that's the way it's going. Their, um, their specializations mean that the uh, they are uniquely suited to um, mobile devices, which, of course, have become a huge success. It's interesting the parallel with the Newton because you look at the Newton and then you look at the iPhone today, and really is the, the I think the original iPhone effectively was Newton 2.0 almost. It was kind of the same concept tended to, you know, but, but obviously it was, what, 10 years 12 years further on. Well, the Newton the was way ahead of its time. Yeah, and, and when it first um, launched, it had some really major issues that Apple eventually did correct, especially in the handwriting recognition. But the tie was cast at that point. It, it was the butt of many jokes. Yeah. And there was no recovering from those initial mistakes. Yeah, but it was in, in, in terms of much in the same way the iPhone did, the Newton really did try and redefine computing. Absolutely. Into a completely different thing from the way it was done before. <clears throat> no Windows, no desktop, um, no concept of saving files, um, you know, handwriting recognition, no keyboard. Uh, connectivity was, was kind of built in or, or very easily added. Um, a handheld device you kept with you all the time that kind of sent you your life. I mean, it effectively was it was the the blueprint for what the iPhone became uh, many years later, uh, and obviously the iPhone was much more capable. But they both had the same core; they both had the same processors sat in the middle of them. And that's ARM. Yeah. So it's an interesting tale. I think it might be one worth exploring in much more depth in the future. Did you uh, ever I, ever have a Newton? Yes, I have one actually. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They are neat. Um, but I, at the yeah. time of its height, I had a choice. I wanted a PDA, personal digital assistant, and the Newton was just really expensive. So I went with, uh, what was the other one? The, uh, the Palm, Palm Pilot. Pilot. Yeah, I, I got a Palm Pilot. And it was a, a half, more than half the size, smaller than yeah. a Newton. Uh, the handwriting recognition worked well, but you had to learn the way to write on it. It, it used its own um, graffiti. I graffiti think it was, was called. called yeah. yeah, you had to write certain way, which yeah. was actually pretty intuitive if if you got into it, and I did. And it was very useful. It synced with the Mac. The software on the Mac itself was very good. Even when I stopped using it, I was using the calendaring app because it just worked really well. It was better than anything Apple had built in. Um, it was a fantastic little product and I really, really liked it. And they did what a, they did the PDA right. And that's one of the reasons I thought when they were coming out with the 
HP touchpad because remember Palm was purchased by uh, Hewlett Packard and they basically took what they were doing rolled it into what was going to be their mobile phones and their tablets and of course HP was in a lot of trouble at the time and they didn't give it sufficient time at all I mean they waited just a few months and they just killed the whole thing uh, it could have been something great and unfortunately it's not and it's a shame because I think the people from Palm really understood mobile computing in a way that HP ever never did. They just, they didn't get it and they didn't give it enough time for it to become as mature as we all saw that it was going to become the, this mobile platform and uh, they killed it too soon. But I liked the Palm pilot. I thought it was fantastic. It fit in my pocket. You know, when I would have, a, I'd go over to a client's house to help them with whatever. Um, I had my notes on what I was going to be doing or what I was going to have to do on my return trip. I would put it on my Palm Pilot, and with with no question, everybody was always impressed when they saw it and they saw how it worked. And, oh, that's that's really cool. I yeah. sold a lot of Palm Pilots to people because of that. So it was a cool product, um, and it's part of this aim or arm history and. I, I, like I said, I think we should go back eventually and, and kind of cover ARM in the way that it should be covered. Because yeah. it's got a rich history. Sure is, and it's ongoing as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to do that one, one time. Anyways, let's move on from Brandon. Um, I got an email <coughs> from Donnie. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'll put a, sh a link in the show notes for uh, for this. And he said, uh, look, Donnie on a lark created a sticker pack for TechFan on iOS. Uh, it's free. It doesn't cost anything. And he knew it wouldn't be downloaded much because why do you want a sticker pack for the show, right? Are you going to yeah. put a TechFan logo in your text? Who would do that? But, it, you know, it's, it's just him messing around and having fun. And he released it and it's on uh, the iOS store. So it's out there in the App Store. And, you know, it, 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 it's not popular. <laughs> Why would it be? So he wrote this this morning. He said, something odd is going on. Up until now, about 10 tech fan sticker packs have been downloaded total, which is probably about eight more than I would figure. Because <laughs> I figured just you and I would be the only ones. Yeah. And he says, in the past three days, about 40 have been downloaded. Trying to see if it is featured anywhere in the App Store. Haven't seen anything yet. Might make it to the top 200. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this. Let's promote this. So anybody yeah. listening, go to techfanpodcast.com or go to mymac.com and follow the link to the App Store or simply look for uh, Tech Fan Sticker Pack in iOS and download it. It's not going to cost you anything. And I honestly, I don't even care if you delete it as soon as right after you get done downloading it. But I would like, <laughs> I would like to see this thing rise up the charts. So it'd be interesting if a relatively small number of downloads actually does put it in the top two hundred. It that, shows you that's nobody's it, downloading stickers. Yeah, yeah. It it would show you that that stickers themselves are. Uh, but if half the people that I know listen to the show, because I look at the numbers. Um, and we never talk about how many listeners we have. I think it's tacky. Um, yeah. If half the people that's listening to this show actually did it, they actually downloaded it, 
we'd probably be at number one. (laughs) So if you have just a few seconds, when you get to work, you probably listen to this on the way to work or the way home, in your car, or you're walking the dog and you listen to it on headphones, whatever the case may be, when you get a free moment, do a quick search uh, in the app store for tech fan stickers and just download it. That's all. Just download it. We, we don't ask you guys to send us money on Patreon or uh, a PayPal donation. We've never done that. We never will. Um, <laughs> but if, if you wouldn't mind, download the sticker pack. It, we're not getting any money for it. We, it's, it's zero. It's nothing. Yeah. I just want to see how high this can go. And Donnie, please let me know. Because we're going to do, if Donnie, you, if you could keep us updated over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do kind of a running tally on how many people do it. So we're at, well, if you count the 10 and then about 40. So we're at 50 people that's downloaded it so far. Let, let's see how high we can get the number. I, stickers. I've got to admit, one of the things that frustrates me about stickers is that I think they're really hard to use. They are. They are. It's not intuitive. Apple promoted it the one time in a keynote, and they've never revisited it. Don't you know what? Don't you get tired of them doing that? Oh, they do it all the time. They show us this really potentially cool thing, and then you can't. Uh, and then you know, the week of the keynote, it's featured prominently on whatever page you know it's part of iOS or the Mac or whatever, and then it's just gone. It's it's on the devices. You could download these things, but they just don't promote it anymore. You're like, well, this is a cool thing. Why aren't they talking about this? And I think, honestly, David, it's that whole mentality of the next cool thing or the current cool thing. Ah, forget about yesterday. I know we talked about that, but look at this new shiny thing. Oh, well, also as well, I mean, well, the thing that kind of really reinforced this to me is the uh, Apple Remote app for uh, the Apple TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it turned out, I mean, they, they released it. I, I can't remember whether it was promoting the keynote or not, but they released it. It was kind of a biggish deal. And then it never got updated. Yeah. And it never got updated, never got updated. Eventually it was updated. And it turned out that there was one guy in Apple whose responsibility was to look after the Apple Remote app. And he'd just been too busy. Mm-hmm. And and I think this happens a lot. And we've talked before about how Apple manages its resources, given how well I think most you know, people think, is. yeah, and it must be a team working on this. No, it's one guy. Yeah, but even if it is a team, what happens is after it's done, the team gets disbanded and assigned to other things. Yeah, and until somebody decides to reform the team to revisit it, it never gets looked at again. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is a problem. I don't. That is a problem on a organizational level. Yeah, it, it's easily yeah. fixed. Well, yeah, it's easily fixed. It's don't do that anymore. Do things differently. That's what I'm saying. It, this is an yeah. easy fix problem. It's a choice. It's yes. a corporate choice to make. And, um, you know, sometimes these things really kick them in the behind because it makes supposedly the, well, certainly the richest, but one of the most advanced tech companies on the planet look incredibly flat-footed. Yes. And it, and it also does reinforce that notion that many people have that Apple is all about the big show and the keynote but actually it's hollow and there's not a lot behind it and so in some cases that's absolutely true yep we do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor and the network that we belong to of course Mac sales is our sponsor and we uh, we really appreciate it you know David if you got one of those new 
27 inch IMAX it it's pretty expensive to boost up the RAM on those things I mean Apple charges so much money for RAM well you don't have to go with the Apple RAM you could save almost 60% on RAM over the factory option with OWC I mean think about that almost it's 58% that's crazy why does well, Apple charge you, yeah what what um what sort of diff price difference are we looking at? Because obviously, fifty-eight percent of not very much is is not. Well, but here's the thing with Apple: they charge um, for like the sixty-four gig option. It's thousands of dollars with Apple. At OWC, it's six hundred and thirty-five bucks. Just that, just the eight gig kit is eighty-five dollars. <laughs> they don't even give you that option at Apple. So, if you've got one of these new iMacs why configure it with so much RAM it's easy to upgrade the RAM in the new 27 inch iMac just get it from OWC and save a ton of money I mean for the difference in price especially if you go the really high end you could probably get an, a, a 10 inch iPad Pro in yeah. addition to the RAM so thank you very much to OWC MacSales.com for sponsoring TechFan <coughs> excuse me and by the way my cold whatever the thing is that I've had for a month now Looks like it's finally subsiding, so that's a good thing. Um, of course, yeah, uh, we are part of the tech, uh, the um, MyMac Podcasting Network. There are other shows in the network that you could be listening to when uh, we don't have a new show out. One of them is the Geekiest Show Ever. They just came out with episode 269, which is called Game Boy Mobile Phone. Now, this is a little thing that was kind of um, an April Fool's joke that became a real product. I've seen, That's happened a few times now. And the, basic, uh, uh, the I was it the arcade the uh, yeah the arcade was the, one yeah the thing you turned into a real arcade mm -hmm. I I've got three arcades of course I've yeah. turned two of them into actual arcades the other ones it's all put together but I haven't done anything with it um so but this was a, basically a, a little device that you slide your iOS or Android phone into. Uh, I believe it's Bluetooth, and it and it kind of looks, I want to say kind of, kind of looks like a Game Boy. And you can play Game Boy games right on that device. It's kind of neat. Um, the MyMac Podcast, of course, they came out with Extraction Distraction. That's not easy to say. Thanks, Guy. Uh, that's episode 668, one of the longest-running podcasts on the history in the history of the planet. Think about that for a minute. In the history of this entire planet, there's only a few shows that's been running as long as the MyMac podcast. I know, you know, things like that worry me. I worry that one day alien archaeologists will come to the blasted cinder that is all that's left of the Earth, and they'll be digging through something, and, you know, they'll be looking down, they'll come trying to get to the layers, or be just before this cataclysm happened. <laughs> and what they'll find is an iPhone, and on that iPhone will be the MyMac.com podcast. This could be the legacy of the entire human race. Just think about that for a minute. David, i got to sleep at some point. What know. a horrific prospect that would be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another show in the, uh, in the network, the last one we'll talk about, is the Essential Apple Podcast, number 52, Blood, Sweat, Tears, VPNs, and Subscriptions. Sounds like stuff that we've talked about quite a bit here on TechFan. Mm -hmm. So make sure you check out MyMac.com and look for other podcasts to listen to. There's a lot of them. And if you go on either uh, Android or 
the iPhone podcast store, if you will. It's not a store, but, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you can actually subscribe to every show in the network. It's called the MyMac Podcasting Network, and it has all of the shows in one feed. So you subscribe to that. You get TechFan. You get MyMac. You get Three Geeky Ladies. You get them all. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, we do encourage feedback here on the show. It's the show at techfanpodcast.com. Send us an email if you download the sticker pack. We want to we want to know. Who's downloading this thing, David? Uh, look, the show's a lot better for us if you guys just, just send us feedback, you know. You, you can hit us up on Twitter. It's techfanpodcast. We are on Facebook. and But email or leaving a comment in the show notes is probably the easiest way of doing it, don't you think? Yeah. We see it that way pretty quickly. At least yeah, I do. Which which easy? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, the easier you make it, the better. Yes, the easiest is better for us. Um, let's talk about this real quick to wrap up the show. Our wiki trolling feature. Now, I picked this one, David, because I knew we were going to be talking about um, ARM and the history and stuff like that. So I wanted to go the different route. Now, I remember back in the early to mid 90s a lot of people were buying cheap PCs that was all the rage yep. and Apple of course was not doing well at all so a company by the name of Packard Bell uh, at one point was selling a ton of cheap PCs and quite frankly they were really crappy PCs <laughs> they were really bad um, and and it was a little disingenuous because a lot of people confuse this company with Hewlett Packard. Yeah, got to admit, I thought they were some sort of Hewlett Packard spin-off. Yeah, they are not. So uh, this is from no, uh, this is from Wikipedia. Packard Bell is a Dutch-based company manufacturing subsidiary of Acer. They were bought by Acer in 2008. The brand originally belonged to an American radio set manufacturer, Packard Bell. Founded by Herbert Herb A. Bell and Leon S. Packard in 1933. Somewhere, blah, 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 I don't care about that. Um, in 2000, Packard Bell, which in the late 1990s had become a subsidiary of NEC, uh, stopped its North American operations while, uh, while in the meantime expanding overseas to become the leading brand in the European PC market. In 2008, it was acquired by Taiwanese consumer electronics firm Acer, in the aftermath of its takeover of gateway computers. So I think that the history of this is kind of interesting because I, you know, I knew about Packard Bell. Uh, I've, I've seen their computers and they were always kind of junky, uh, but they looked kind of nice back in the day. I remember they looked kind of pretty good. Um, Aside from, well, let's go up. According to Fortune Magazine, Packard Bell sometimes benefited from misplaced name recognition with consumers, especially first-time computer buyers. And even I, I mean, some... it does sound like... I mean, yes, they're Dutch, but it does. it does sound like an American company. Packard well, it was... It, yeah, exactly. Hewlett Packard, uh, obviously Bell Bell Labs. Yes. You know, AT&T, the Bell logo, Pacific Bell. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I must admit, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted by this, that they weren't a, um, I thought they were dyed-in-the-wool American company. And, and it turns out what it was, was a group of Israeli investors bought the brand, which used to make radio and TV sets, 
and they just basically use it to as a as a kind of a you know much in the same way that you can buy Polaroid stuff now, but it's nothing to do with the original Polaroid company. Right. Uh, they used it to sell computers, and uh, yeah, pretty pretty clever. But the other thing that's interesting here, you said that the computers look nice. They were actually uh, the industrial design was all done by Frog Design, who famously did a lot of the early Apple stuff. Yeah, in fact, I think Frog Design was uh, involved in the Newton. Yeah, I think. Well, they, they I think they basically basically did everything in the early Apple years. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly the two C stuff like that. They're they're responsible for uh, Snow White and and all of those kind of design languages they came up and and you can see I'm looking at this picture on the Wikipedia page you can kind of see a bit of Snow White in that uh, in that PC there Yep. aside from low price and brand confusion Packer Bell's success and numbers of units sold may have come from two areas of innovation number one branding industrial design provided by San Francisco offices of frog design and two it's boot up shell Packer Bell navigator created by the pixel company in Seattle they targeted a huge section of consumers who were inexperienced using computers. Frog Designs gave the look and quality and utilized innovations such as color-coding cable connectors, first seen in the IBM uh, PS2, <coughs> Excuse me. while Navigator provided the ability for users to launch installed programs by, click, by clicking on-screen buttons, and then later a house, a house metaphor. During this phase, returns dropped from 19% to 10% and grew... I, think about that for a minute. They had nineteen percent returns at one point. Yeah, uh, yeah funnily enough, that's that's kind of the re- return level that uh, Microsoft have just uh, reported with the surfaces. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, but that that's not great. One yeah. in five of your customers says this is and this is junk. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to skip all the way to the bottom. Yeah. On October fourteenth, twenty sixteen, Southern Telecom Incorporated entered into a license and trademark assignment agreement with J.M.M. Lee to purchase the United States trademark. Southern Telecom is a Brooklyn-based manufacturer. Southern Telecom will begin manufacturing Packer Bell products in 2017. In June 2017, just a couple months ago, J.C. Penny revealed that they would begin selling a line of Packer Bell laptops as part of their expansion into the dormitory market. So the cheap, junky PC is on its way back. Yeah, well, every few years you get this. Yep, never fails. Bring, bring the. It, oh, it's got brand recognition. So hey, let, we can make money on that. Not, not create a new brand. Use a junky old brand. So with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of Tech Fan. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Again, we do encourage your feedback. It's the show at techfanpodcast.com. That song you just heard was, by the way, David dropping off of wire. It looks like his wire crashed or the network went down or something like that on his side. Good timing because we were going to wrap up the show anyways. Uh, the show at techmanpodcast.com. Uh, make sure you subscribe in iTunes or the Google Play Store. We are located in both of those areas. You can listen to it right on the website at techfanpodcast.com or mymac.com. And we will see you in one week.